You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of the book by Rudolf Steiner entitled Anthroposophy of Fragment, a new study, a new foundation for the study of human nature. This is chapter 3, The World Underlying the Senses. Our sense, our sense perceptions provide the basis for the rest of our soul life. Mental images arise from our interaction with the outer world, based on the first three senses, and also on smells, tastes, colors, sounds, and so on. Through these images, what comes to us from outside is mirrored in our souls. An ordering takes place that allows us to orient ourselves in this outer world. Experiences of sympathy and antipathy take form, and our feeling life takes shape within them, our wishes, urges, and willing develop. A common identifying feature for this inner life of the human soul can only be found by looking at how it is held together and permeated, as it were, by what we each call our own I. Capital. A sensory perception becomes a soul experience when it is taken up out of the senses' domain and into the realm of the eye. We can get an idea of this by pursuing the following simple line of thinking. I feel, for example, the warmth of a certain object. As long as I touch the object, an interrelationship is present between my eye and the outer world. Within this interrelationship, an image of the object's state of warmth develops in my eye. When I take my hands off the object, this image remains in my eye and constitutes something essential within my soul life. We must not fail to note that it is precisely this image that frees itself from sensory experience and goes on living in the soul. Within certain limits, we can call these experiences, which we have with the help of our senses and persist in our soul, quote, our world, unquote. However, if we ponder how this world enters our domain, we are forced to presuppose another existence for it. How can this world ever become soul experience? How can we know anything about it? Simply by virtue of the fact that we have senses. Before the world can present itself to human beings as sensory perception, the senses themselves must be born out of it. The world would be soundless for us if we had no sense of hearing, without warmth if we had no sense of warmth. On the other hand, it is equally clear that no sense of hearing could come about in a world in which there was nothing to hear, no sense of warmth in a world without warmth. We need consider only the fact that no eyes develop in beings who live in darkness. 
or the fact that eyes developed under the influence of light degenerate when their owners give up their existence in the light to dwell in darkness. We need only to think this through in all clarity to be able to say that the world presented to us through our senses, the world on which we base our soul life, must be underlain by another world, a world out of which the senses arise, thereby making the sense world itself possible. This other world cannot possibly fall within the domain of the sense world, since it must precede it entirely. This relationship of the senses to the world that gives rise to them opens up to our contemplation the view of another world lying behind the sense world, a world that is imperceptible to our senses, but out of which the sense world rises as if out of a sea of existence lying behind it. Our sense of warmth perceives warmth. Behind the warmth lies something that has shaped our sense of warmth. Our eyes perceive by means of light. Behind the light lies something that has shaped our eyes. We must distinguish between the world that is given to us through our senses and another world that underlies it. Is there anything we can say about this second world simply on the basis of reflection? Indeed there is. Through our interrelationship with the outer world, as conveyed to us in sense perception, our inner world of concepts, feelings and desires comes about. Our relationship to the other world that we are presupposing underlies the sense world can be thought of in exactly the same way. Through it our sense organs come about. Footnote, an alternate version of the following text can be found in the appendices, beginning page 171. I will be adding that to the end of this chapter. And a footnote. Let me clarify, I will be ending that at the end of this chapter. End of footnote. We are present with our I, capital, in everything there is to experience in the sense world. And our soul world develops within the I on the basis of sensory experiences. The process of building up our sense organs that necessarily precedes all sense perception must take place in a domain of reality that no act of sense perception can penetrate. Parenthesis, we scarcely need to consider an objection that might arise in passing, specifically that we can observe the development of sense organs in another being, what we can perceive in this case is perceived by means of our senses. We can observe how a hammer comes about without having use, without using a hammer ourselves. But we cannot possibly have a sensory perception of the development of a sense organ without ourselves making use of one. Parenthesis. We are totally justified in saying that our sense organs must be built up out of a world that is itself supersensible, beyond sense perception. And the nature of sense perceptions, as described in the previous chapter, provides a starting point for us to contemplate this other world and say more about it. Since our sense organs ultimately appear 
as the result of this world's activity. This activity must be manifold, working on us from as many different sides as we have sense organs. The streams from this world pour themselves into those wellsprings that lie in the sense organs, so that we may draw from them for our soul life. And because what we draw from these wellsprings is finally gathered together into the eye, so it must, although coming from many sides, originally well up from something that is unified in its activity. The manifold sense perceptions are unified in the eye. In this unity they show that they belong together. <clears throat> what impinges on the soul as sense perceptions is such that the inner life of the eye can separate itself out from them. From this it is apparent that in a supersensible world, behind the sense world, there exist as many springs of activity as there are sense organs. These springs of activity reveal themselves through their working in the building up of the sense organs. Thus the number of these wellsprings of activity is equal to the number of our sense organs. The outermost limits of the realm of these wellsprings can be assumed to be set by the eye on the one hand and the sense of touch on the other, although neither of these may be reckoned as belonging to our sensory life as such. Once something belongs to the eye, it has freed itself from sense perception and should no longer be counted as such, since it is now a wholly inner experience. But intrinsic to any sense perception is the fact that it can become an I experience. Therefore, every sense organ must have been endowed by the supersensible world with the ability to provide something that can become an I experience. But the sense of touch provides experiences of the opposite sort, so to speak. Whatever it tells us about an object is presented as something wholly external to us. Thus we ourselves, in our entirety, must have been built up out of the supersensible world in such a way as to use experiences of touch to set ourselves apart from a world lying outside us. If we survey human soul life as it develops on the basis of sensory experiences, our sense organs appear as fixed points, as if on the circumference of a circle, and the eye appears as something movable that acquires soul experiences as it moves through this circle in different ways. The human organism's entire structure, at least as it reveals itself in the sense organs, points to its origins in the supersensible world. There are as many sensory domains as origins, and within the realm of these origins a unified supersensible principle that is pointed to by the orientation toward the unity of the I. Further observation shows that the supersensible activity revealing itself in the structure of our sense organs works in a variety of ways. 
in the three domains of the senses of life, self-movement and balance, it works from within our bodily existence outward and makes its presence known right up to the boundary of our skin. In the senses of smell, taste, sight, warmth and hearing, this outward directed activity is also present, but it is accompanied by another which we must describe as working in the opposite direction into our physical existence from outside. Consider, for example, the organ of hearing as a member of the human organism. Within this organism, forces must be present that actively shape this organ in accordance with the nature of the body as a whole. But there must also be supersensible forces coming from outside, forces that are concealed in the world of sound and that shape the organ in just the right way to make it receptive to sound. The organs of the last five senses listed above point to a meeting of forces on the surface of the human body, as it were. Forces working from within the body outward configure our individual sense organs according to the nature of the body as a whole, while forces working from outside inward come to meet these inner forces and impress the organs on the body in such a way that they adapt to the various expressions of the outer world. In the senses of life, self-movement and balance, only one of these two directions, the one working from inside out, is present. It becomes further apparent that in the word sense and concept sense, the direction from within outward is absent. These senses are built into the human being from the outside in. The supersensible activity that shapes these senses is already becoming similar to our inner soul life. To the extent that we must also already see the potential for the I, of course again capital, in the supersensible forces that build up our senses, as described above, we can say that these forces divulge their inner nature to the greatest extent in the eye. In the eye, however, their inner nature has condensed into a point, so to speak. If we consider the eye, it shows a reality in one point, which rests spread out in richest profusion in a supersensible world. This reality, working out of this supersensible world, reveals itself only in its effects, in building up our senses. The sense of touch shows itself to be the opposite of the eye in this respect as well. In the sense of touch is revealed that aspect of the supersensible world, or if you will, extra-supersensible world, that cannot become inner experience for the human being, but is inferred by means of corresponding inner experiences. Anthropology describes our sense organs as sense-perceptible phenomena. The fact that it does not yet designate specific organs for the three senses of life, self-movement and balance, coincides with the results presented above, since the forces characterized as working from within outward 
shape the human individual into a sensory organism, which is general, which experiences itself, and which maintains its posture. The organs of these three sensory domains spread out over our general bodily existence. Only when it comes to the sense of balance does anthropology point to the three semicircular canals as a suggestion of a specific sense organ, because with this sense we enter into an elementary relationship with the outer world, specifically with the directions of space. The five middle senses have separate organs. We can easily recognize that the capabilities we have described as working from within outward and from outside inward work together in various different ways to form these organs. Parenthesis anthropology still has some doubts about the existence of an outer sense organ for the sense of warmth, but these doubts will be resolved as science progresses. Parenthesis. Outer organs for the sense of word and the sense of concept cannot be described in the same way as the organs for the other senses, because these organs are already located where our bodily life turns inward to become soul life. The sense of touch, however, will increasingly show itself to science as what it must indeed be in light of what has been considered above. It cannot but work in such a way that we draw back from the objects we are touching, withdrawing into ourselves, shutting ourselves off from the domains of this sense by shutting ourselves up in our inner bodily experiences. He considered the organs of the sense of touch to be structures spread out over the entire surface of the body, and we are thus obliged to recognize in these structures something that intrinsically has to do with the body's surface drawing back from the outer world it touches. The organs of touch, therefore, actually shape the inside of our human bodily form. They give the body the shape through which it closes itself off from the outer world, touching it on all sides. Parenthesis, in areas where our organs of touch demonstrate greater sensitivity, we relate differently to the outer world than we do in areas of lesser sensitivity. We push against the outer world to a greater or lesser extent, so to speak. This leads us to notice that in some respects our bodily form is a result of the specific nature of the organ of touch at different points on the surface of the body. Close parenthesis. That is the end of chapter 3. And it is the proper end. But I will also add on to this the appendix on page 171 of the book. That is a re. That is the first draft, as it were, of this chapter. And one could stop now if they wished. Otherwise they can continue and listen to that appendix. Appendix 1 to Chapter 3 An earlier version of text, beginning with, quote, We are present with our eye, unquote, page 100 in Chapter 3. The text below can be assumed to be the first version of the contents beginning on page 100. These contents, however, were rewritten by Rudolf Steiner in the form in which they then appeared in his final manuscript and in the corrected printed sheets. The sentence, quote, We are present with our eye, unquote, page 100, and the words, quote, we are totally justified, unquote, page 101, are the same in both versions, but the content of what follows them is different. We are present with our eye in everything there is to experience in the sense world. 
and our soul world develops within the I on the basis of sensory experiences. We are not present at the building up of our sensory organism. Reflection, however, will tell us that existence cannot stop at what we perceive with our senses because without an existence that is imperceptible to the senses, we could have no senses to use for sensory perception. We are totally justified in contrast to the human being who is evident in the sense world in speaking of another human being who cannot be revealed in this world. The first interacts with the sense-perceptible world and out of it develops a soul life. The second interacts with a different world and develops out of it the capacities for sense-perception. The second human being is contained, as it were, within the first, but the second makes up a much finer configuration therein than the first. Soul life as it develops on the basis of the world of sense perception, reveals itself in the outer form of the human being's configuration. Just consider the face of someone on whom the sun of life has always smiled, and see how different it is from one on which life's heavy sorrows have left significant traces. If we continue to reflect along these lines, we will soon arrive at ideas of how in the physiognomy, in the expression, in the gesture, and even in the form of the person's body, the character of the soul life is revealed. Within limits, this is also a result of the interrelationship between the human being and the sense-perceptible outer world. However, this revelation has something unspecific about it. It is constantly shifting and evolving. It does not offer a stable configuration. On the other hand, the capacity to have sense-perceptions as such is to a great extent something finished and solid, forming a basis on which we actually build up our mobile, conscious soul life. Just as it is not far-fetched to differentiate between the outer world and the inner human soul world, through their interrelationship the latter appears as a reflection of the former, so it is not far-fetched to assume a comparable difference between a hidden outer world and a human inner world that lies concealed behind the one in which the I lives when basing itself on the sense-perceptible world alone. We can distinguish between the world that lies spread out before the human being when one or more of the gates of the senses is open and what is within the human being but connected to that world by means of the interrelationship between them. Here we will apply the term sense-world to what is in the world spread out in this way. What we encounter within the human being, as just described, will be called the I human being capital. For the moment, let us not associate anything with this name other than its immediate usage here. The world out of which the capacity for sense perception is formed, in a similar way, for example, to how mental pictures are formed out of the sense world, will be called the etheric world. And what is born in the human being out of this etheric world, just as the I-being is born out of the sense world, will be called the astral being. In using the term etheric world, 
We should not think of the ether of physics, nor should we think of anything other than what has just been characterized here in using the term astral being. In this way, an etheric world underlies the sense world, just as an astral being underlies the eye-being. Just as the etheric world cannot be sense-perceptible because it is what generates the senses in the first place, so the astral being also cannot be experienced with the senses because it must precede the development of sensory capacities. We can now tackle looking at the human being from yet another side. To begin with, the human being appears as a being within the sense world. This appearance, however, is subject to change. In different ages of life, the particularities of the human being are different. When we look at a child as a sense-perceptible being, we can in no way see from what the senses present what it will develop into in adulthood. And yet we must assume that the circumstances, the forces that will cause the adult to emerge from the child are already present. Here too an exact reflection shows that existence, or what is real, conceals within itself more than is perceptible in the sense world. Describing the process of growth provides contemplation with an opportunity to gain an idea of what is concealed here. Until the second dentition around the seventh year, the activity of what is concealed works primarily at configuring the outer human being. Around this time, the organs of the outer body have assumed their lasting configurations. From then on, although the limbs continue to grow, the configurations that have been established are never actually reshaped. From then on, the concealed inwardness begins a life within itself and opens itself up to the forces that unfold their activity more in this inwardness. In the first years of life, the inner forces strive toward the outer body as formative forces. In the following years, they remain more inwardly predisposed until they are mature enough to transpose their nature onto another being, that is, until the individual becomes capable of reproduction. We must recognize what develops within the human being, imperceptible to the senses, to the point of sexual maturity, as what can be transmitted to one's descendants. At this point we must consider something that is important for our understanding of the nature of the human being. The conditions for what can be transmitted to one's physical descendants lie in something that achieves a certain completion in its development when sexual maturity is reached. If anything of what the human being acquires at a later stage in life is to be passed on, it must first be incorporated into the forces that are already present at sexual maturity. It can be passed on only indirectly through these forces. Once sexual maturity is achieved, of course, all the essential conditions for heredity must already be developed. At sexual maturity, what transmits itself from inside to outside ceases to develop in the human being. In the early stages of childhood, it reveals itself as the forces shaping the body. Later, it works inwardly in such a way that the human being can pass on configurations 
to descendants. If human development continues beyond this stage, it can only take place inwardly. What continues to develop must primarily be experienced as inner content, as soul content. This, however, may not be equated with that conscious content of soul that is lit up by the eye and develops out of sensory perception. There is a certain inner development that is not in the hands of the eye, in the same way as the development of conscious soul content. Coming to meet the soul life that is stimulated from outside through sensory perception is not the same as what comes from inside and causes each individual to take in the sense-perceptible outer world with a very particular nuance of soul. That is, there is something within the human being that comes to meet sensory stimuli, something that does not yet belong to the human domain of being stimulated by the senses. Through simple reflection, so to speak, we come to an inner human being, concealed behind the I human being, because it must already be present before the I human being's life can begin. It is not difficult to recognize that this inner human being is the same as the one we have described as interacting with a hidden world behind the sense world. This inner being cannot have been evoked by those inner forces whose development is concluded at sexual maturity, since it continues to develop thereafter. It cannot be attributed to the human being who expresses him or herself in giving shape to the body and in transmitting its nature to descendants. Instead, it must be rooted in an entity that has nothing to do with the manifestation of human forces that we have just mentioned. It also cannot originate in the same way as these force manifestations, for these cause human beings to reveal outwardly what they carry within themselves. However, this inner being must actually interrelate with what is outward because it continues to develop even when the inner shaping forces and hereditary conditions have reached completion. Everything about this inner human being justifies our equating it with what we called the astral human being earlier on. We would, therefore, have to presuppose effects in the etheric world, whose significance for this astral being is similar to that of sense impressions for the I-being. The astral being takes shape out of the etheric world in the same way that the I-being does out of the sense world. Behind all of the sense world, therefore, an interaction takes place between an etheric world and an astral human being. To use an image once again, we have here an expansive ocean, imperceptible to the senses, in which an interaction is taking place between the etheric world and the astral being. The interplay between the sense world and the I-being rises like dry land out of this ocean. <clears throat> is the etheric world to be sought only outside the human being? Obviously not. Through our senses of life, self-movement and balance, we perceive our own bodily existence in the same way that we perceive outer objects through our senses of smell, taste, and so on. The same interrelationship between an etheric world and an astral being that exists for the outer world 
must also be possible for when we delve down into our own bodily existence. This means that we must have something within our own body, excuse me, this means that we must have something within our own bodily inwardness that is equal in nature to the etheric world. In other words, one must carry a piece of this etheric world within oneself as a special etheric human being. The human entity is thus seen as consisting of three members, the I-being, the astral-being, and the etheric being. Now, it is this etheric human being, imperceptible to the senses, that underlies our perception when we perceive the condition of our own physical existence by means of the first three senses. When this happens, an interplay between the astral and the etheric being takes place. Real-life observation shows that in our mimicry, physiognomy, gestures, and so on, even the I-being leaves an imprint on our outer physical existence. How can it do that? It has been shown that these forces of an inner being work on the form of our outer physical existence and complete their development at sexual maturity. If the I-being is to have an effect on our outer physical nature, it can only do so indirectly by means of this inner human being. Since this effect does occur, the I-being must have an influence on this inner human being. This inner being's connection to the astral being is a much more intimate one than its connection to the I-being. This is demonstrated by the fact that how the astral being relates to the outer world is much more strongly expressed in our physical existence than is the I-being's soul content. If someone follows all the events of the outer world with passionate involvement, this is much more evident in his or her physical existence then is the experience that person has of one thing or another through sensory perception. It follows from this that the astral being works on the inner being that we have characterized. <clears throat> Here, two realms of forces within the human being contrast with each other. The astral being, which interrelates with the outer etheric world, comes up against the inner human being we have characterized which contains the shaping forces and the conditions for reproduction. It is not difficult to recognize that their encounter is similar to the interrelationship between the astral being and the etheric world. From this it clearly follows that the inner being we have characterized is the same as the etheric being already presented from a different perspective. Thus the etheric being is the bearer of our bodily shaping forces and the conditions of reproduction. We can now see how the human being and the outer world merge. To begin with, the sense world and the I-being interrelate. This interrelationship is underlain by another that exists between the etheric world and the astral being. The formative forces for outer sensory capabilities for the sense of smell, taste, and so on must lie concealed from the senses within the etheric world. Toward the inside, the astral being interrelates with an etheric being, and in this interrelationship, the perceptions of the senses of life, self-movement, and balance result. 
On the other hand, however, the etheric being is active in the configuration of the body and in the conditions for reproduction. An imprint of the etheric being thus lives in what appears as the external body of the human being, but not in a simple way. Consider the shape of the ear, for example. In its own way it is shaped from two sides. What is alive in the etheric world, behind the world of sound, makes it possible for the ear to be the organ of the sense of hearing. But this shaping from the outside must be met by one coming from inside, because the etheric being is active and alive also in the form of the body's organs. The reflection that follows shows just what the relationship is. The forces of the etheric world cannot, wherever they may disperse, call up an organ of hearing. They cannot do it if what they encounter is a stone. Why not? The stone shows nothing within it that is of the same nature as the etheric being we have characterized. It does not give itself its outer form from within, as does the human being. It also does not reproduce. For the organ of hearing to form itself, what molds hearing in the etheric world must therefore encounter the etheric human being. However, that is not enough. The plant grows and reproduces. If we attribute an etheric being to the human being, we must also attribute an etheric plant to the plant. The plant, however, lacks the interrelationship a human being has between the astral being and the etheric world, as characterized above. In order to build up sensory capabilities, this interplay between the etheric world and the astral human being must insert itself into the encounter between the forces of the etheric world and the etheric human being. The outer human being is thus a complicated being in its configuration. The way that it manifests itself can only come about because an etheric, an astral, and an I-being stand behind this outer configuration. A fourfold membering of the human being results when we add the outer configuration itself which will be called the physical being, to these three members of our being. A consideration of the senses has led us to recognize the human being as a fourfold being. However, if we take these considerations exactly, we can find in them much that is unsatisfying and leads to further questions. For example, it has been pointed out that our sensory activity presupposes an interrelationship between an etheric world and the astral being. This astral being comes to meet the impressions of our senses as the inwardness nearest them. How the astral being is constituted is expressed in the nuance that sense experiences take on once they are taken inside without the eye being influencing them directly. Now, we can immediately see that the astral being's experiences are imparted to the etheric being, since we see the formative effect of the astral being's experiences on the physical in physiognomy, gestures, and so on. As far as we can see here, however, this effect is slight. Nothing speaks against the possibility that the etheric being, if it were stimulated more strongly in the same way, 
could express itself with greater force in forming the physical being. However, we must admit that the forces that stimulate the etheric being to form our gestures and physiognomy cannot be the same as the ones that work so strongly on it as to mold the forms of the sense organs. What is contained in the etheric world shows itself to be a twofold entity, one that works on the astral being and another, which is stronger, that works on the etheric being so that it can mold the forms of the senses. This shows that something works out of the etheric world itself that is similar to the astral being and acts within the etheric being to stimulate the shaping forces that mold the senses. In that concealed domain where the etheric world is to be looked for, a role is played by another world that works on the etheric being and is related to the astral being. We will call that part of the etheric world that interrelates with the astral being, the inter the, ether, the etheric world in the narrower sense of the word. The other world to which our reflection has led us will be called the astral world because of its relationship to the astral being. We can thus say that the sense world works on the eye being, the etheric world works on the astral being, and the astral world works on the etheric being. Since as many sense organs must take shape in the physical being as there are separate sensory domains, we must also distinguish as many different domains of forces in the astral world. These domains of force arouse the corresponding formative forces in the etheric being, so that the corresponding sense organs are molded in the physical being. This generally stated fact is, however, subject to numerous variations due to the different characters of the sensory domains. Let us take the sense of smell, for example. Through it, the human being penetrates very little into the interior of a body of substance. Only the outer side of substance presents itself to this sense. Contrast this with the sense of warmth. Through it, the human being penetrates much deeper into the interior of an outer body. We can conclude from this that the organ of the sense of smell must have been built up by weaker forces working from outside and stronger ones working within, while the organ of the sense of warmth must have been built up by stronger forces working from the outside and weaker ones working within. Taking each of the separate sensory domains in turn, we find a hierarchy with regard to how they were built up from the outside and from the inside. The first three senses, the senses of life, self-movement and balance, are essentially built up from within, that is, the part of the etheric world that develops into the etheric being is active in building them up. This etheric being shapes the physical body in such a way that it is adapted to the perceptions of these senses. The etheric being can shape it in this way because it has been stimulated to do this by the forces of the astral world. We can see that the building up of the human being, as it manifests in these three sensory domains, has to do with an interaction between the astral world and the etheric being, which has nothing at all to do with the interplay that takes place between the etheric being and the astral being.
it is different with regard to the senses of smell, taste, sight, warmth, and hearing. The etheric being must manage to build them up in such a way that in the corresponding sensory domains an interplay between the ether world and the astral being is possible. This means that a force must work out of the astral world onto the etheric human being for each of these senses. These forces working out of the astral world bring about in the etheric human being the shaping forces that bring the corresponding senses into function. We can therefore say that in the senses of life, self-movement and balance, the astral world works together directly with the etheric being, while in the senses of smell, taste, sight, warmth and hearing, it works in a way that takes the astral being into account in forming the sense organs. It is different again with regard to the senses of language and concept. Here a much more direct interaction between the outer world and the astral being is necessary than with the five preceding senses. This direct interaction begins to approximate the one that takes place within the eye-being and sensations, which leaves its physical imprint in facial expression and physiognomy. This is why these sensory domains develop only after birth, when the human being can come into contact with the outer world, whereas the formative forces for the other senses are already brought into the world at birth. We are justified in saying that while the forces for building up the senses of life, self-movement and balance lie deeply concealed behind the sense world, the forces for the senses of speech and concept lie directly behind the sense world, the forces that serve to build up the senses of smell, taste, sight, warmth and hearing are found in between. This relationship becomes outwardly clear in the way anthropology describes the sense organs that are present in the sense-perceptible world, that is to say, those of the physical human being. There are essentially no clearly delineated sense organs that can be described for the first three senses. Only for the sense of balance is there an indication of such an organ in the semicircular canals of the ear. The reason for this is that the corresponding shaping forces for these senses serve the general build-up of the physical being, and this is what is sensed in the corresponding sensory domains. The senses of smell, taste, sight, warmth, and hearing are served by specific organs that have been built into the physical being's general structure, because forces of the outer world play a large part in building them up. Such specific organs are essentially no longer present in the case of the senses of language and concept because these senses approach the domain where the physical being tends toward the soul qualities of the human being. The eye, on the one hand, and the sense of touch, on the other, are not to be reckoned as belonging to the domain of the senses as has been shown. In a way, however, they form both boundaries of our sensory life, the I takes, capital I, takes in sense perceptions and transforms their impressions into soul experiences. These are fully inner experiences and cease to belong to sensory life. To the sense of touch, the objects remain wholly external. 
What is experienced of them through the sense of touch are actually inner experiences that have related to what is outside in the world through a hidden judgment. These inner experiences belong to the domains of the senses of life, self-movement and balance. It is clear that the outer world revealed to us through the sense of touch is the only one that can be called a completely external world in a certain sense because in order to be perceived it does not need to build any particular sense into the human being. Between this outer world and the human eye lie the domains of which the fourfold human being develops. However, the differences among the sensory domains require us to make further distinctions among them. In the domains of the senses of life, self-movement and balance, Shaping forces of the etheric being, forces that play themselves out in the physical being, reveal themselves. In the case of these forces, the astral being is not taken into account. We are dealing here with forces that work on the inner physical existence of the human being as if in a certain respect the astral being did not exist for them. To take effect, they descend into such hidden depths of human existence that they are out of reach of the astral being. In the fields of the next five senses, forming forces manifest that do take the astral being into account. In the senses of language and concept, forces are apparent that are already very close to what is manifested through the senses. They must thus distinguish the sense world which reveals itself in the I-being, whose conscious life it shapes. The etheric world, which is hidden directly behind this sense world and shapes the astral being. In this etheric world, the astral world is concealed, which shapes the etheric being in such a way that it develops the shaping of forces of the physical human being. <clears throat> but we must presuppose still another world behind this astral world, for as has been demonstrated, Ellipsis, there is a gap in the text. Ellipsis. Senses of hearing and warmth prove to belong together with the processes of breathing and warming more than the former do with the processes of maintaining and growing. We can recognize, however, that these latter processes, which express themselves in the interior of the body on a more feeling level, belong together with the interior senses of self-movement and balance. The life processes of growing and maintaining work more on the side of the interior senses. The processes of warming and breathing work more on the side of the senses through which the human being opens the gates of his or her life to the outside. Thus the exterior senses are intensified by the life processes in one direction, while the interior senses are intensified in the opposite direction. This fact can be illustrated with an image. Let us think of the set of the sensory domains as a sphere, with sensory experiences working from its surface. In order to do justice to the contrast between the workings of the external and internal senses, we will imagine an indentation at one place on the sphere, so that the interior senses can thus also be imagined on the inside of the sphere. If we also want to illustrate, using this sphere, 
how the life processes intensify the working of sensory experience in one direction or another, we must imagine the spheres being elongated in two opposing directions. The life processes such as breathing and warming, which have to do with interior experiences that bring the life process into a relationship with the outer world, work toward one end while the life processes such as secreting, maintaining and growing, which reveal themselves in inner experiences, work in the other direction. We can therefore say, speaking symbolically of course, that the human body is given a spherical configuration through the forces that are manifested in its sense organs. This configuration is then elongated by the life organs. Now, The two directions that come about in this way are of different value for life. On one side, where breathing, warming and nourishing appear, life opens up to the outside to renew itself. With the processes of secreting and maintaining, it pushes its processes into the actual interior of the body. It thereby, in a way, repeats itself within itself. Further processes then show that with growing and generating, something is given that through its own particular nature is withdrawn from the direct renewal of life. The forces that act to renew life in breathing and warming no longer flow toward it. Toward the interior of the body, or better said, running from within outward, finished formations come about that must be subject to dying off. Parenthesis, in the animal kingdom, we see how these formations lose their ability to live and are cast off as in lower animals shedding their skins. A shedding of this sort takes place constantly, if less noticeably, in the human being. We need only observe how our fingernails grow out from the inside and pass over into ends that are dying off. Parenthesis. The two sides of life that we characterized symbolically above, therefore, show themselves as a polarity between renewing life and destroying life. Here the text ends. This is the end of the appendix to chapter 3 and the end now of the complete reading of chapter 3.